Warning, if you read the Bible and you don't cuss, you're doing it wrong. Today's episode of The Scathing Atheist is brought to you by the new biblical laxative, Stigmata Musil. Our patented formula can help you digest even the most ridiculous biblical inaccuracies and contradictions while voiding your brain of doubt through the mental equivalent of diarrhea. Stigmata Musil, because religion is full of shit. And now, The Scathing Atheist. Hi, everybody! It's me, Master Roshi. And we did, in fact, evolve from filthy monkey men, especially Goku. It's August 20th. <laughs> and if you suffer from moderate to severe Crohn's disease, I sure hope fatal events aren't scary to you. I'm no illusions. I'm Heath Enright, and from City of Skyscrapers, New York, New York. And from the City of Toenail Clipping Tooth Scrapers, Podunk, Georgia, this is The Scathing Atheist. <laughs> On this week's episode... An Austrian Bubakurian fingers a porn star and then rolls over on her. We'll get disfellowshipped. And we learn that Jeremiah always had some mighty fine roofy wine. But first, the diatribe. Her little heart, my mother is still convinced that one of these days I'm going to find Jesus. She's so consistently in denial about it that the last time she brought it up, I felt compelled to point out how incredibly rare it is for a person my age to convert to theism. And while that didn't sway her a lick, I do think it's worth spending a minute on. All right, so don't get me wrong here. I'm fully aware that every apologist out there can name three prominent atheists none of us have ever heard of that eventually converted to Christianity. And if I ever simultaneously lost all my morals and my money, I might just pretend to do the same thing. And then, of course, you've got the nut fungi like Kirk Cameron that say I used to be an atheist in hopes of gaining some street cred or because they think that I spent seven or eight years not thinking about religion is the same thing as being an atheist. Now, that being said, yes, there are still plenty of people who were real atheists and then became real theists. There's at least one of them for every 10,000 that goes the other way, maybe more. But even then, it tends to be a fundamentally different type of conversion, right? Now, theists turn atheists usually get there slowly. First, they're kind of religious, but not really religious. But then they're religious and they don't go to church. But then they're spiritual and not religious. And eventually, they're atheists. When it goes the other way, it's far more often a quick and or even instantaneous conversion. And more often than not, happens to coincide with a personal tragedy. I'm sure that's a coincidence, though. So look, if you dig deep enough, yes, you're going to find a genuine atheist that slowly started to doubt their dismissal of religion and ultimately changed their mind. But they are a minority of a minority in a minority. When confronted with this information, the theist will usually respond by pointing out that they know you are, but what are they? They'll argue that it's untrue despite the evidence, or on the rare occasion they'll admit that it's a fact, they'll argue that it doesn't matter. And on the rare occasion that they'll admit that it matters, they'll start arguing that it isn't a fact again. But it does matter, and it is a fact, and it's a pretty damn significant one. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that atheism is correct, but it certainly favors that conclusion. Consider that for every person pushing the atheist worldview, there are literally tens of thousands pushing the theistic worldview, if not hundreds of thousands. And they're universally better funded. Consider that atheism doesn't have any post-mortem carrots or sticks to offer you. And for most of us, it offers the exact opposite of social acceptance. And beyond that, almost to a person, we'd all rather we were wrong. 
right? I, I mean, I can't imagine anybody volunteering to live in a world where Jesus' dad, he's in charge. That crazy fuck shouldn't be trusted with an ant farm. But I think we can all agree that if we got like definitive evidence that showed that, yes, there's actually an eternal afterlife in paradise, we'd be pretty okay with having been wrong this whole time. And that's the point. Atheism is almost always the more intellectually honest position because there's nothing to be gained from it except the satisfaction of embracing reality. There's no reason to believe that God doesn't exist if there's any credible evidence at all that he does. In other words, it can't be the product of motivated reasoning because there's no motivation for the reasoning. You know, the, uh, the, the Ray Comforts of the world love to say that we atheists deny God because we're in love with sin. But even somebody as brick-fuckingly stupid as Ray Comfort has to recognize the problem with that statement. After all, he's a Christian. He knows his doctrine. He knows that there's nothing in there that encourages a person not to sin. It's all about my personal salvation, isn't it? All about my personal relationship with Jesus, right? I accept him as my personal Savior, and after that, nothing else counts. No major Christian denomination still teaches that you get to heaven by being a good person or refraining from sin. So not only is the claim insultingly stupid, it's not even internally consistent. And of course, hate to point this out yet again, but even when it comes to the things that they say are sins and we say are perfectly okay, they still do them more. Religious people are way more likely to to get divorced. They're way more likely to watch porn or drink alcohol or gamble or get pregnant out of wedlock. So even when we let them set arbitrary standards of morality that we don't agree with, we still come out on top. So, So how can our love for porn and booze lead us to the group that does that stuff less? There is no reason to be an atheist other than an honest examination of the evidence. And there's no reason to be a believer based on an honest examination of the evidence. And that by itself trumps every argument offered by the theists who think that they have logic on their side. I became an atheist without any help from anyone. In fact, every external influence in my youth was pushing me towards religion. But like nearly everyone listening to this show, I got where I got using reason and reason alone. And not even the most ardent Christian thinks that a person sans Bible could honestly examine humanity and say, you know, it looks like some kind of cosmic Jewish carpenter died for all these sins. He must be his own father and also a jealous, petty, tyrannical space wizard who runs the universe. You know, look, scientific discovery is the same everywhere. A Korean scientist and a Norwegian scientist working on the same problem will eventually reach the same conclusion. Not so for theologists. You know, the more we delve into the sciences, the clearer and more cohesive a picture of the universe we get. That's what happens when the tool you're using is real. Science has managed to build a worldwide consensus on damn near everything in the span of 300 years. The longer a scientific subject is studied, the more agreement we can come to. But the longer a religion is studied, the more fractured it becomes. Because despite their million-year head start on figuring out what this God thing is, they can't even give us a fucking definition they can all agree on. And I'm sorry, but that's the kind of thing that can only happen if you're full of shit. They're talking about your Jesus. Interrupt this broadcast and bring you a special news bulletin. Joining me for headlines tonight is fantasy football fanatic Heath Enright. Heath, are you ready to get this preseason shit over with or oh, what? I cannot wait. I cannot Tell wait. By it. the way, I just got hired to manage my friend's fantasy team after he botched his draft. He took Tony Gonzalez. That's right. <laughs> Retired tight right. end Tony Gonzalez. Uh, apparently Rudy was already taken. There's a run on tight ends. Wow. Worst uh. draft since Vietnam. <laughs> All right, moving on. In our lead story tonight from the firewall of separation file, the Republican National Committee recently launched a website for its newest unconstitutional campaign called GOPFaith.com, aimed at supporting Republican candidates for the midterm elections, 
by promising evangelical voters a rewrite on the First Amendment and, yes, most of history and science if they have time. Right. And according to the website, the three main goals of this evangelical movement are important pro-life legislation, protecting religious liberties, and getting rid of Obamacare. It's a, a religious topic, yeah. Right? Yeah, like if Jesus wanted people to get affordable health care, he wouldn't send us such a big bill to that leper. Now would he? <laughs> exactly. What the fuck does that have to do with anything? And since revisionist history is like catnip to creationists, the RNC decided to hire experienced mercenary pseudo-historian David Barton uh. to help promote their voter mobilization efforts. According to Barton's GOPFaith.com promotional video... When the Founding Fathers fled Christian theocracies and created the United States based on the idea of secularism, it was because they intended for us to be a Christian theocracy. Also, Clearly. evangelicals have been ignored in elections until now, he claims. So, we've been an explicitly Christian nation since day one, but somehow Christian voters have been ignored by all the political parties this whole time, even though every voter technically was a male Christian voter. For right? I mean, like, about. that guy is incredible. He can say two completely opposite things, and yet they're both wrong. I'm proud of him. This is I mean, impressive, yeah. you know, he's he's moved from revisionist history to revisionist present. That's a big step. <laughs> also, yeah. <laughs> I love the the George Washington quote he used at the end. It's like it's just it's it's like five words offered without context that functioned as the subject in some sentence somewhere. It's like it's like when the reviewer says the movie was less fun than projectile diarrhea, but the blurb they use in the commercial just says dot 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 fun. Yeah, just fun exactly. By the way, this guy, David Barton, the RNC brought in as their founding father's expert. This is the same David Barton whose 2012 book entitled, I shit you not, their founding father's expert, book entitled The Jefferson Lies, was voted, quote, the least credible history book in print. I am not quote, surprised. By a survey from the History News Network. That's for real. And then the repeatedly discredited book was soon removed from shelves by an embarrassed Christian publisher, but I imagine a few copies are still out there being batted around wildly and humped by rabid fans somewhere. <laughs> Dude, that book was ahistorical compared to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And then maybe now you'll finally have time to send my half of that $27.4 million news. Insanely rich Nigerian pastor and part-time Soul Glow <laughs> model TB Joshua has solved the Ebola outbreak with magic water. Which is Soul Glow! The first movie Samuel L. Jackson was ever in, by the way. Joshua is Nigeria's and Earth's third wealthiest pastor and had decided to use some of his vast eight-figure fortune to send five figures worth of money to Sierra Leone <laughs> along with 4,000 bottles of Magic Jesus Ebola water. So, I wonder how they decided on that volume of right? Magic Jesus Ebola. Now, doesn't this sound a lot like an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, though, a little bit? <laughs> TB Joshua and the gang solve the Ebola crisis. <laughs> <laughs> DeVito becomes like a blood diamond warlord somehow. Clearly. We should write that up. Give it a try. That'd be good treatment. That'd be good treatment. Now, I'd, I, I would take a minute to express just how demonically cruel it is to hamstring government efforts to actually combat this epidemic by fooling people into thinking they can cure a hemorrhagic fever with holy water. But based on the fact that your headphones are in your ears rather than your rectum, I'm going to guess you probably <laughs> puzzled that one all, all on your own. So. <laughs> and from the Jehovah's Witness Protection Program file. If the front porch security systems we advertised are a little bit out of your price range, we may have a cheap, easy solution for you. If you join the J-Dubs and then quit, 
they are officially willing to shun you forever. Nice. So well that's the good news. Poor man's moat. Real simple to uh yeah, and I mean, as far as I'm aware, it's it's only the second most effective method, but I recommend it anyway because as I learned the hard way, there's actually a law against forcibly transfusing someone's blood, even if they're on your porch. <laughs> I thought this was America. Like Aren't we in America? Injecting them with AIDS. <laughs> All right, but here's the bad news. They took the shunning thing way too far in their latest publication of The Watchtower, their awful publication. Now they're telling congregants not to mourn the death of family members if that person ever left the church during their lifetime. The official policy apparently says something like, the moment you become an apostate, you get invisibly killed by Jehovah, and you can't ever have a funeral. Obviously, and and they somehow justify this with a reference to the story in Leviticus where God kills Aaron's sons for peeking (laughs) behind the God curtain or whatever. Like, I'm sorry, look, as much as getting shunned by the J-Dubs sounds as bad as, you know, whatever, getting the silent treatment from Fran Drescher, you got to figure this is pretty (laughs) fucked up as a threat if all the J-Dubs that are shunning you include your entire extended family and every person that that family has ever allowed you to associate with. Don't make me shut off Beautician and the Beast. I'll do it. <laughs> You'll have to stop listening to her beautiful, melodious timbre. So I guess the rule is if you're not in the pew by the time NFL fantasy rosters lock for the early games on Sunday, God murders you. Right. That's how it's going to work. Around. <laughs> Sorry, son, but we won't be having a funeral for your mom. I know it's a sad thing. As it turns out, though, God actually murdered her last November. Yeah, you remember when Gronkowski, he was a game-time decision for that whole stretch? We didn't. He usually is. Somebody had to. Oh! Gronk, if you love Jesus. That's my team name you this year. I got it. Well done. I'm using that one. And in Ham Scam Thank You, Ma'am News, science raper and external salivator Ken Ham is still full of shit, but this time in a new way. It Hmm. seems that his Ark Encounter theme park, which is both for-profit and for-profit, wasn't satisfied with illegal tax incentives and has now moved on to illegal hiring practices. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Well, if you get your answers about ethnic history in Genesis, you think everyone's an African Jew. So the hiring practice stuff gets really tricky. Like, how do you... Now, the controversy here centers around a recent posting on his website about a job opening at the theme park. Now, as it turns out, for-profit companies can't demand that potential employees provide a salvation testimony, a creation belief statement, and a confirmation of your agreement with the AIG statement of faith. Hold on. So, I'm sorry. A salvation testimony? Right? Like what? what uh, like the... a letter of reference from Jesus? What are you even talking about? <laughs> Apparently. Now, when confronted about this on a radio call-in show by intrepid investigative journalist Dan Errol, Ham claimed that the job was for Answers in Genesis, which is exempt from employee discrimination laws because it's a ministry. When Errol pointed out that the one he's talking about is the ad that says, Wanted Technical Designer, Arc Encounter, for which the (laughs) job description begins with the words, Our Work at Arc Encounter, Ham responded by clicking a bit and then impersonating a dial tone until Dan hung up. (laughs) Can you still see me? It's radio. Ken, it's radio. Yeah, creationists definitely make funny noises when you paralyze them with cognitive dissonance like Apparently. that. I actually once watched Eli Bosnick argue with a subway preacher until he made involuntary AOL dial-up noises. <laughs> greatest, and his face exploded. It was of fantastic. Well, that's the best part. Now, <laughs> while there is still some question about whether this represents an illegal hiring practice, there can be no doubt it represents an immoral one. And considering the length Sam is going to to be deceptive here, kind of hard to imagine that he thinks it's legal. Right? Clearly. And in I Hate Black People, Now Show Me the Money News, 
African-American conservative pundit Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson announced on a radio appearance last week that the murder of unarmed 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri by a police officer was completely justified because the deceased was obviously a thug. He mentioned unarmed murder victim Trayvon Martin as an example of another thug, just in case clarification was needed to make it right, hadn't really danced good on point. enough graves. Now, I, honestly, I don't think we should be rushing to judgment against the cop, though, because, I mean, look, you tell an unarmed man to put his hands up, and then he puts his hands up, but for all you know, he could be signaling to an R2 unit to shoot him his lightsaber, with which he's yeah, then yeah, going mean, to go attack your whole barge, because, I mean, it was obviously that's what the cop thought, otherwise it was cold-blooded murder, and we know that would never happen. Of course not, well, no. Cop now, Peterson points out that Brown shouldn't have been running from the police. Which he wasn't. No. But when you run away from police, you're still running towards someone. You know, you force the officer to stand ground for any libertarians that may or may not be located (laughs) in the other direction, I guess. That's the... So let this be a lesson to all the unarmed black kids out there who, you know, run sometimes. Only run sideways. Like, right. Make sure it's perpendicular to the police and all other people at all times. Learn to use that strafe button. That's... You're really going to have to strafe a lot. That's the key. And, of course, of all the people defending the cops in this one, you know, all seven of them, I think Peterson might have been the only person in the country whose argument was actually weakened when we found out that it was definitely not, like, in the back that he was shot. <laughs> Everybody else came out smelling a little better after this. Made him look a little worse somehow against the laws. Now, quick background on the Reverend. He gained favor among conservatives when he famously suggested in 2005 that most of the black people stranded in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina were, quote, welfare-pampered, lazy, and immoral, end quote. Not coincidentally, he now resides in the same glass enclosure as S.E. Cup at the Exotic Republican (laughs) Zoo, like we discussed last week, where they plan to breed a bizarro Obama, it seems like. (laughs) He's also rumored to be the inspiration for Samuel Jackson's character in Django Unchained. He followed the guy around a lot. Right and and they... Don Johnson's character as well, I believe. <laughs> so, so it seems like Rupert Murdoch may have noticed finally that the conservative message is slightly more palatable coming from black men. And rumors suggest Murdoch might even be planning an entire new channel for conservative black people. Really? Not sure why we haven't been contacted already about this, but, you know, let's give him some ideas anyway. By Whatever. all means. We'll need 30 seconds on the clock. Ideas for the Black Conservative Media Network. Go. All right. This should be a fucking minefield. How about, um, <laughs> all right, considering all the shit in Ferguson, I, I say we start the day off with a show called Good Morning, Your Loved Ones, America. <laughs> I was thinking this guy, Peterson, clearly belongs on a show called Fox and Black Friend. That <laughs> seems to be his role. Best friends are foxes. How about Access North Hollywood? <laughs> And they're obviously going to need a channel called BET Party. (laughs) Obviously, yeah. How about um, Real Non-Hockey Sports with Brian Gumbel? Or, no, wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, we should have a black guy to host that one, I guess. (laughs) Exactly. Step ahead of me. Um, Call it the the Foxy Brown Network. Looking for black exploitation without all the snarky darky sarcasm? (laughs) What can Foxy Brown do for you? I apologize. Apologize. (laughs) Apology accepted. Why not? How about... This American serving life. <laughs> wow, dude, just gets um, worse, huh? A little more black exploitation for you. How about one more? Um, I'm gonna get you Huckabee. I'm gonna get you Huckabee. All right. Well, I was already on the uh, NPR programs. How about the Prairie Crib Companion? <laughs> Nicely done. Real time with Flava Flav. <laughs> Democracy you know, eventually. <laughs> um, no Mad Duckets with Jim Cramer. <laughs> 
I was sure that was going to be Jim Cromer. Or or Cosmo Cramer. I think. <laughs> yeah, I guess he did get caught He's... on African-handed camera once, didn't he? <laughs> well done. Um, about the Soul Bear Rapport. Nice. Or um, Susan B. Opie and Anthony. Which is, by the way, the only way that show's ever going to shake its racist label at this point. They're going to have to actually resurrect Susan B. Anthony and Heifer. And still, probably not. Nah, yeah, right. Um, that couldn't quite do how it. How about uh, Ideology Fizzle Television? <laughs> Black people at Christmas. Nine Inch News? You, you, never get, you never get accused of racism when you compliment their dicks. <laughs> you said my headline was a good size. Um, what about Blackface the Nation? Oh, damn it. I was going to go with Face the Segregation, but you beat me to it. So, yours was better. Um, how about uh, how about the Allen West Wing? God <laughs> maybe, forbid. Maybe a spinoff, Uncle Tom's Cabinet. Uh, oh, God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna have to keep doing. That. How about um, Burning Crossfire? <laughs> in, um, in the front yard. I'm trying to picture these production meetings. Maybe a reality show about the conservative counterpart to the Congressional Black Caucus. You know. Call it house niggas, but oh, you know, with an A-Z, so as not to be offensive. We're not assholes. But that still doesn't have anything Republican in the title. Oh, good, good point, good point. What's another word for conservative, guys? Oh, Niggardly house niggers. Perfect. Perfect. I'm so terribly, terribly apologetic and sorry to everybody listening. I'm, I'm, I'm half black, I swear. So, But the lower half, ladies. Um, how about wait, wait, don't shoot me. Is that is that worse? Is Terrible. that better or worse? Um, about three fifths of the O'Reilly factor. Oh, I'm so. But, oh my but god! Mine I was I awful. That one in. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was actually going to go with Anderson Cooper two sixteen, but I figured nobody would do the math. <laughs> I can't believe worse. you put that. I actually had that in here before, really? and I took it out. <laughs> Um, and in a titty upon a hill news, we'll move to tit jokes. Tit jokes. Everybody loves tit Perfect. jokes. Perfect. Yeah. No. It's... Austrian amateur porn actress Babsy has boobs worth going to jail for. Now, she yes, found that she out unexpectedly last week when she was identified by a boob aficionado and arrested for filming a pornographic video in a church without permission. And in headline form, a jail of two titties. Oh, nice. It was the chest of crimes. It was the worst of crimes. <laughs> really wasn't that bad, but in the video, a uh, woman whose face is not shown is seen unbuttoning her shirt and caressing her breasts while holding what looks like, upon repeated slow-motion viewings, a Bible and a rosary. (laughs) Now, luckily for the church, many of their parishioners beat off on a regular basis and recognized their church in the backdrop of the video. Must have been a really awkward conversation with the uh, the pastor there. Anyway, so and also apparently Austrian TV is way cooler than American TV because they showed the video on the news, at which time the quintessential cum-encrusted, hairy-palmed master super-masturbator came to the rescue <laughs> by recognizing the tits sans face. This Seriously, this happened. This guy's like a boob savant. Right? Unbelievable. <laughs> and at some point, this means the cops had to set up a tit lineup for this guy <laughs> to positively ID this Set of tits, like eight out of ten times, whatever the rule is, you know? So, okay, number three, step forward, jump up and down twice, spin around, now pick up that dildo in your cleavage. That's her, that's her, that's her. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Nobody knows for sure to all 75 girls get a few chances, dude. So, you know, just relax. We might have to be here all day and just putting on some coffee. Now, Babsy confessed and now faces charges of offending religious feelings and desecration of a church, though... 
I, I don't know. I watched closely. Nobody ever came on anything, so I don't think these charges are going to stick. Now, that's not all the boob news we've got for you tonight. To further discuss the societal dangers posed by mammary glands is my lovely wife, Lucinda. A man wrote the Bible. A whore is what she was. If it's a legitimate rape. It it's a slut, right? Hey, cooking can be fun. Hey, I'm proud of a man. This week in Misogyny. We'll start tonight where we left off last week with a bunch of topless women protesting a church in Warsaw, Ohio. Since last we spoke, the tit that those breasts were there to protest has fired back, calling their protest an offense to God. Enraged by the ability of these harlots to, quote, bear their breasts to children and to married men against their will, end quote, Dr. Patrick Johnson is urging Ohioans to write to their legislators and demand that boobs be covered in public. He also pointed out that if it wasn't for all those topless women, nobody would go to gay pride parades because apparently he thinks gay men go for the boobs. It's also worth noting that Dr. Patrick Penis compared the Columbus Gay Pride Parade to at least three other gay pride parades he's attended throughout the country. He's also spent nine years protesting outside a topless bar every weekend. But it's all because he hates the boobs. Anyway, by Dr. Cox's logic, if Ohio banned the breast in addition to not having to see the things almost all men have paid to see at one time or another, people would also stop catching the gay at these rallies. So let me sum up the logic here. Seeing boobs makes you gay. And speaking of boobs that can make me gay, Pastor Steven Anderson will make his second appearance on this segment in as many weeks, but this time he's out to help. In a sermon on marital advice, which is like taking lessons on quantum physics from Deepak Chopra, Anderson advised women to stop idolizing movie stars because they're, quote, a bunch of sodomite faggots, end quote. First of all, Stevie, either sodomite or faggot was an unnecessary modifier. And second, if Tom Hardy is gay, it doesn't really change the odds that I'll get a chance to fuck him, other than in my head. So I'm not really sure how this all matters. And finally, go gargle some sperm, you dick-obsessed homophobe. But I suppose a good-looking fellow like Pastor Steve Anderson couldn't possibly have an ulterior motive for convincing an audience that includes his wife that Brad Pitt, Johnny Depp, and Leonardo DiCaprio are gay. He must just have our best interest at heart. After all, women shouldn't be looking for the Chris Hemworths and the Michael Fassbenders of the world. What we really need is a man who understands a woman's needs, like Colorado congressional hopeful Mike Kaufman, who supports a woman's right to, you know, whatchamacallit. Kind of, but not really. In a recent debate, Kaufman was asked about his position on reproductive rights, to which he said he, quote, supports a woman's access to, um, certainly to, um, this Hobby Lobby decision to, um, about, um, end quote, to which everybody in the entire room that wasn't him prompted birth control, you idiot. Worse than his inability to come up with the term birth control was his inability to come up with his own position on the issue. Immediately after the debate, Kaufman released a statement distancing himself from himself and explaining that he doesn't actually support a woman's access to birth control unless their employer says it's okay. Jeez, that's going to do it for this week of misogyny, but I'll be back shortly to celebrate my gender's proudest accomplishment, namely not having anything to do with that god-awful Jesus book. Until then, I'll hand it back to Noah and Heath. Thank you, Lucinda. A couple more quick news items to cover. In You Sank My Babble Shit news tonight, the U.S. Navy has unremoved thousands of Bibles from federally owned hotels across the nation this week after deciding that the <laughs> FFRF could go fuck itself. Bibles were removed from the Navy-owned guest lodges in June after a letter of complaint reminded the Navy that they can't simultaneously uphold the Constitution and wipe their asses with it. Huh. After a public outcry, the Navy elected to return the Bibles, noting that as nice as impartial rights codified in our nation's founding documents are, they can't carry pitchforks and torches. <laughs> no, they cannot. And from the new math is hard to swallow file. Following remarks in support of Common Core standards by not Republican enough Senator David Vitter, 
The Tea Party of Louisiana sees the opportunity to mobilize its homophobic Christian base by warning that standardized curricula will turn students gay. They cited an article entitled, Common Core Turns First Wave of Students Gay, not realizing that it's from an Onion-style parody site called Broken World How News. could you not know? And, and despite an about page that reads, quote, if you believe any of the shit you read here, you are a freaking moron. It actually quote. says that. So for all of you people out there complaining about Facebook's satire tag, consider that right now we're legislating based on Onion articles. (laughs) So either we do the satire tag or we invest federal funds to shut down the new Missouri abortion plex. (laughs) Two choices. And just to be perfectly clear, here's something the freaking morons read on the fake site and actually believed. Quote, Initial estimates suggest that as many as 60% of students who participated in Common Core have gone gay. <laughs> many overnight. <laughs> but, but experts fear that some are just transitioning a little slower. End quote. So that's their fear. <sighs> Carry the two, cup the balls, right. <laughs> and I'm gay and smart. Well, what was even worse is they had a second article that they listed that was even less credible, possibly, by the aforementioned <laughs> human parody site David Barton. So <laughs> exactly. didn't get any better as you scrolled down. And in a ton of fun to shun a nun news tonight, controversial nun Sister Elizabeth Johnson is a subject of an investigation by the exact same part of the Vatican ex-Pope Ben and Jerry's was heading up when he did the whole child rape enabling <laughs> thing that later would make him famous. Johnson gained notoriety after publishing a book that brazenly postulated the existence of vaginas in black people. When asked about the investigation, she said, paraphrase, glad to see they've laundered enough money to pay off their rape victims so they can free up some time to fuck with me, and paraphrase. <laughs> How do these guys still get insured? Seriously, right? like, who calculates that premium? Yeah, it's like okay. giving car insurance to Paul Walker, or, right. or life insurance to Paul Walker. <laughs> God, good move. Dude, I so wanted to find out what Hersey was going to be in so I could, like, catch up to it at a red light, start revving my engine. But <laughs> I, I didn't out of respect. But I thought about it. such a good story for you. And from the might literally get away with murder file, Daniel Munoz of Sydney, Australia, hoping to avoid jail time after stabbing his wife Melissa to death last October, pled not guilty by reasons of temporary Islam at his arraignment last week. Well, there you go. He claims, quote, Allah told me to kill her, end quote. When it was suggested that he's not even Muslim and, in fact, perhaps Polish Catholic, he may have responded, quote, what the fuck are you talking about? I converted two weeks before I married and killed Melissa. Stop being Muslim. And reports corroborate his alibi, actually, indicating that he was, in fact, a first trimester Muslim at the time of the stabbing. There you go. Oh, you know what, though? You may have inadvertently figured out how to stop all the Christian on Muslim hate crime. Just refer to all Muslim ages and trimesters. You know, remind these people that, you know, those guys used to be fetuses, too. So, And that's going to have to do it for headlines tonight. He thanks, as always. Uh, glockenspiel. And when we come back, we'll learn that contrary to what your third grade teacher said, there is such a thing as a stupid question. What, what the, the fuck, fuck is, is a saint? 
The word saint originated in the Christian tradition from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy or consecrated. The term is used in recognition of people who are especially holy, like St. Olaf, who gained notoriety by massacring hundreds of villagers, St. Ambrose, the patron saint of Jew bashing, and St. Pope John Paul II, the patron saint of ignoring child rape allegations. At first, the term simply referred to a follower of Christ, but it eventually came to mean a really good follower of Christ. According to Catholic tradition, saints are people who get automatic fast pass tickets and get to skip the heavenly line altogether. For centuries, the term saint was bestowed locally to beloved priests or religious figures at the discretion of the local parishioners. In fact, it wasn't until the year 993 that the first pope got into the canonizing business and declared Ulrich, the Bishop of Augsburg, to be the first officially Vatican-sponsored saint. Still, the declaration of saints wasn't yet an exclusive function of the pope. For centuries after the first undisputed pope saint, sainthood could still be granted by lesser church officials or, in some instances, by popular demand. Of course, this led to dumb shit, like a French dog being declared Saint Guinefort for eating a snake, so eventually the papacy decided to take over entirely. Today, the process includes a series of papal power-ups. Potential saints begin with the title Servant of God, and upon the collection of enough experience points, they move up to veneration, beatification, and then eventually saint. Perhaps the most well-known qualification for sainthood is the performance of posture miracles. In order to achieve full sainthood, a candidate must perform at least two confirmed miracles after they die. Of course, no miracle, posthumous or otherwise, has ever been confirmed to a reasonable standard, but luckily for the candidates, Catholicism doesn't employ reasonable standards. Now, it's impossible to say exactly how many saints there are, as many of them predate the formal canonization process, and many traditional saints achieved their status based on stories that were later proven false. Still others were based on people that never existed to begin with. While there is no official Vatican saint count, most sources agree that they number well into the thousands. Some saints are further elevated to the level of patron saint, giving them a quasi-pagan dominion over a certain profession, place, or concept. Some of the more well-known patron saints include St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland, St. Christopher, the patron saint of travelers, and St. Valentine, the patron saint of trading flowers for blowjobs. But in addition to these popular favorites, there are some lesser-known patron saints that I didn't make up, such as St. Friars, the patron saint of being scared of wasps, St. Barbara, the patron saint of sudden loud noises, and St. Fiacra, the patron saint of diseased genitals. Being officially declared a saint was once an extremely rare honor, but these days the Vatican gives the title away for free if you sign up for the unlimited plan. The exponential growth in canonization started when Pope John Paul II streamlined the process and then went on to declare more saints than the past 500 years worth of popes combined, over a hundred new saints in all. Benedict followed in his footsteps, but Pope Franz and Hans smashed all previous records when he canonized 815 new saints in a single day last May. Of course, other denominations of Christianity have different definitions of saint, but you've done a hell of a job pretending to be interested so far, and I don't want to push it. From time to time on this show, we like to set aside a few minutes to talk about some of the common apologetics used in defense of theism. Heath, what twisted distortion of rationality do you have for us this week? <laughs> Tonight we'll be talking about the what about trees defense. So, okay. very excited. I, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with that argument. How is it formally stated? It, it's actually pretty simple. Um, kind of puts the jism back in syllogism, actually. Uh, breaks down like this. Premise A, God makes trees. Premise B, there are trees. Conclusion... God clearly exists. Wow. So, well, that's not very sound logic. As Tracy Harris points out, I could just as easily say, gremlins break watches, my watch is broken, therefore gremlins exist. So. <laughs> but, but your watch isn't broken, is it? Well, I, I don't actually own a watch, but that's not the point. All right, so it's not broken, but there are actually trees. Right, but it's, yeah, but it's still not sound logic. 
Okay, maybe I'm not being clear. Let's try this in action. Um, I'll be the theist. You be the atheist, okay? I think I can do that. All right, so, so tell me there's no God. There's no God. What about trees, though? What about trees? Exactly. No, I'm, I'm serious. What about trees? I'm serious. Exactly. What about trees? That, but that doesn't make any sense. How is that an argument? Well, what's your counterargument? I don't have a counterargument. There you go. I, I won. No, but I don't have a counterargument because you never presented an argument. And that's the beauty of the what about trees defense. There's simply nothing to argue with, is there? Well, I mean, you could just make up nonsense words and achieve the same effect. I mean... Well, yeah, yeah. Nonsense words do that, too. Uh, have you ever argued with somebody speaking in tongues? Of course not. Well, give it a try. It, it'll actually be one of the more lucid religious debates you ever have. Pretty of fun. that, I have no doubt. But, uh, okay, so let's get back to the trees thing. I, I suppose if somebody actually pulled that one on me in an argument, I'd point out that, you know, for every beautiful thing wrought by nature, there's also a flesh-eating bacteria. So Right, but, but flesh-eating bacteria are also... Made by God, so they're evidence of his existence, too. But why would a loving God make flesh-eating bacteria? Why would a loving God make trees? I don't know. There you go, again. No, I think I win. there I don't go. You still haven't made a single point. But you just said, I don't know, so I win the argument. That's, it doesn't work like that. Sure it does. You said, I don't know, which means I stumped you. And I win. I mean, it's the same in evolution debates. Everybody that's, goes, oh! But that's just stupid. I mean, if that's how arguing worked, I could just win every argument by asking my opponent what I just had for breakfast. You had a leftover hash brownie and four cetrids. Well, nicely done, but not everybody knows that. <laughs> All right, the thing is, I think you're still missing the beauty of this what about trees defense. It's such a formal abdication of logic that it makes it almost impossible to maintain even a civil discussion about it. I might as well start answering your questions with farm animal noises. <laughs> Similar well, effect. But that. isn't that a reason why it's a bad argument rather than a good one, though? I really think you're losing sight of the point of street apologetics. It's not about convincing you. It's about convincing myself that I'm still faithfully convinced. And if you can't answer my question, then my question did its job. That's the rules. Okay. All right. So, okay, then how should we counter this argument when we come across it? All right, I hate to say it, but you really got to stoop to their level and abandon rationality altogether. So what exactly are you suggesting? The farm animal noises, like I said. <laughs> what? Like moos and cock-a-doodle-doos and whatnot. You know, you're, know. you're suggesting that when I encounter this argument, I, I moo? Yeah, precisely, yeah, or, you know, a I'm, different one. I'm not sure how that would work. Look, if somebody hits you with multiplication tables, you don't come back with trig. You keep it on their level. The, the key is you keep your points on the same intellectual level as the points they're presenting. So, you know, that's the idea. Let's give it a try. With, with farm animal noises? <laughs> yeah, yeah, same as before. You're the atheist and I'm the theist, so. Okay, uh, there's no God. What about trees, though? Um, moo... Hmm. Interesting point. Uh, but if there's no God, why don't you just kill people then? Brock. Oh, well, well, sure, sure, I suppose. Decent point. But but why are there still monkeys then? Uh, okay, but, but what if you're wrong? Think about that. Um, Aflac. <laughs> Okay, I guess maybe you're right. Maybe there isn't a god. Uh, perhaps I'm free. This is pretty sweet, actually. That's not how it would play out in real life, though. <laughs> well, that's what you assume, but we got to start mooing at apologists before we can be sure, right? So, okay. you know, yeah. somebody's right. got to do it. I'll take it under advice. Perfect. <laughs> 
Despite popular rumors to the contrary, it turns out that Jeremiah was not, in fact, a bullfrog. He was actually a piss-angry Jewish prophet that spent his days telling everybody he could hold still that God was salivating over the thought of smiting them and their extended families. It's chocked full of gruesome descriptions, heinous injustice, a complete lack of moral guidance, and a laughably inane series of predictions. In other words, Bible as usual. And surprisingly, a little bit of atheist cuisine. Yes, yeah, just a tad. And of course, joining us to polish off the second longest book in the entire fucking Bible is my lovely wife, Lucinda. Lucinda, welcome back. Fuck. Are we still reading this shit? Indeed we are. But don't worry, we'll be done soon on the geological scale. So why don't you get us started? Okay, we start with God coming to Jeremiah when he's just a little kid and I think ass-raping him, but it's kind of hard to follow. I, I'm not no, sure. it was it was pre-uterine rape. Ah, God said, before okay. I made you in the womb, I knew you. So, no. Talk about being born with a silver shekel in your mouth. <laughs> Yeah, every prophet, they have to construct this absurd, elaborate origin story for themselves. Same thing every time. God appears and says, you're the new prophet. Dude's always, no, 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 I'm just a kid who doesn't shh. Awkward lip touch. Relax. <laughs> I'm God. Make you like Wolverine. What do you want? Adamantium? Whatever. Regenerate. Then Jeremiah kicks off his prophetic career by telling the Israelites that they're a bunch of God sluts and deserve slavery and exile. They're like kids on the escalator, these Israelites. How many times do they have to watch their sister get pulled into the mechanism and die in a bloodbath before they stop switching gods? Obviously an important message. Then God makes it clear that even though he knows that Israel fucked that god from Tim's birthday party... (laughs) On a gaming table, no. He's still willing to take them back as long as they grovel a bit. And we're all well acquainted with what an evil fucker God is. But Jeremiah, he may be in top evil deity form. He's Mm -hmm. awful. It gets a little greedy here, I thought. He's already getting a piece of every dick, and now he wants Israel to (laughs) circumcise their hearts now? It's either a terrible idea or an even worse metaphor, one or the other. (laughs) Yeah. So Jeremiah says, hey, God, how about not sending lions to massacre the people of Israel? And God's like, are you kidding me? Have you seen how much fucking they're doing? Right. Yeah, you, you guys like remember fucking... earlier how the camera lingered on that boiling pot of MacGuffin soup tilting toward Jeremiah from the north? Well, Jerusalem's about to be savagely conquered by a tribe from the north. So. Yeah, the symbolism in this book is sub And I love how God pays lip service to real morals here and there amid his incessant jealous caterwauling about other gods. In chapter 7, he devotes one sentence each to the mistreatment of orphans and the oppression of the poor, one word each to murder, lying, and adultery, and six and a half paragraphs to being the right religion. This whole book strikes me as God's creepy stalker phase after Israel dumped him. <laughs> Keeps calling Jeremiah and hanging on <laughs> little dolls made out of foreskin. Ew. Gross. <laughs> and chapter 10 is just a bunch of, gee, God, we're all really impressed with your dick type of stuff. And like way too much of the book. The gist of this one seems to be, I am God and I have come to speak to you. Awesome, God. What have you come to say? That I am God and I've come to speak to you. <laughs> right. And to his credit, Jeremiah has the sense to say, I've got a crazy idea, God. Why don't you only punish the wicked people? Right. And immediately upon their doing of wicked stuff, you know, like right away. Wouldn't that be more efficient than, you know, bottling it up for 11 generations and then genociding entire races? It just seems <laughs> more logical. And right. To, 
To which God replies, yeah, but they're babies and livestock are assholes too. Right. Kill them. And then God demonstrates this by having Jeremiah bury his dirty undies on the bank of the Euphrates (laughs) and digging them up a week later. Gross. And when he digs up the dirty undies and they're just buried dirty undies, God says, and that's what your whole fucking race is going to look like when I'm through with them. Weak, buried, shit-stained loincloths. <laughs> Perhaps the strangest parable so far. Right, right, right. But that whole chapter is so incredibly fucked up. It's the one where God points out that black people can't turn white. It's the one where he promises to get everybody good and drunk before he kills them. And it ends with God promising to give all the Israelites all wedgies and marching them around town with their skirts over their heads so that people can laugh at their dicks. And by the way, please doubt me on this and look it up for yourself. Chapter 13. Right. Check it. Yeah. He actually says that stuff. Can an Ethiopian stop being black and go to heaven? No. So <laughs> right. I'm killing everyone in Judah. I mean, do leopards have spots? Do, do Moabites shit in the sand? <laughs> <laughs> I also love that one of his specific prophecies was all the people who are prophesying the exact opposite of what I'm prophesying are all full of shit. Right. <laughs> Clarifies that for us. Yeah. <laughs> And it's right about here, Jeremiah realizes that prophet is just about the worst job ever and starts complaining right. to God. Dude, when you tell an ancient tribe that God's going to slaughter them again, it doesn't matter if the prophecy works out or not. Right. I get burned today. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You can always tell when God's really pissed because he'll start telling you what kind of fucked up stuff he's going to do to your body after he tortures and kills you. It's like the God equivalent of your mom using your middle name, only right. worse. <laughs> and this comes up often because Jeremiah essentially has George Clooney's job from up in the air. He just goes from town to town saying, you failed to remind God how impressive his genitals were, so he's going to wipe you out. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but God's an idiot. He says, huh, I got this important message sent to my chosen people. I guess I could get a blathering crazy guy to scream, repent for the end is nigh at the city gates. I mean, right. that's, that's probably the <laughs> most logical way to get the, get the word out. Jump yeah, board. should work. And even when Jeremiah comes back and says, they're not listening, God, God says, okay, plan B, kill their children, strike the women with pestilence, and slaughter the men in battle. Right. Got yeah. it. Yeah. And twice God brings up that he's so pissed about people burning their children to bail, but both times he adds that this is unauthorized baby burning that he did not <laughs> decree. So it's not that baby burning is always bad, but like all things, there's a time and a place for it. <laughs> And that place certainly is not a high one. You right. Like, <laughs> and, and you can get a much better medium rare at lower elevations. Right. Yes, so. obviously. Right. And if they don't stop doing that, God's going to make them eat their babies. So that'll show them. Right. It does. He's going to eat their babies. You're well ready. done and dry, right? I mean, let this be a lesson to you. Let yeah. Be a lesson. <laughs> So eventually Jeremiah gets sick of his new job and he says, God, can I at least once just go into a town and tell them, great job, guys. Bountiful harvest for your righteous asses. You did it right. Yeah, so so King Zedekiah sends some envoys asking Jeremiah if he can get God to help them out with the Babylonians that are besieging their cities, to which God says, no, and I'm also giving you the plague. Right. Get out of here. Well, now, he does offer a few, you know, find us a shrubbery type conditions, you know. If, for example, the king makes sure that no one anywhere ever gets robbed and nobody ever treats anyone else poorly, he might intervene. But otherwise, it's generations of slavery for your righteous ass. And by the way, God sucks at analogy. I'll give you an example. He shows him two baskets of figs. One's ripe, one's rotten. And then he goes on to explain that the good figs represent the good people of Israel and the bad ones represent the bad people. Wait, the... Right? Like, if I'm Jeremiah, I'm going like, dude, I don't need a visual aid for the whole good-bad dichotomy. I have the good-bad thing down pat. 
I think it's telling that this book recognizes that there are bullshit prophets out there and that none of the people have any way of reconciling the genuine prophets, you know, from the con artists. Right. But after pointing that out, God still gets pissed at them for not heeding his prophet's words. Like, God couldn't come up with a trademark or a seal of approval or something. Right, shit. like the thing that you had with the Transformers, you wipe it, and, it, and it gets, when it gets warm, it has the Decepticon logo. That would work. Yeah. Or just make people heed his prophecy. Right, right. <laughs> he's fucking God. After and instead, all. he roofies the entire human race with a single glass of wine. That was what his solution was instead. Just making them do it. He roofies it. Then we get another eight-year-old analogy from God. Tells Jeremiah to make sure all the... The other tribes know that, you know, they're going to be slaves to Babylon for a few generations here. It's pretty much set in stone. But they won't understand the message unless you wear an enormous wooden yoke around you <laughs> to, to really underscore the slavery. I, I still don't get it, Jeremiah. <laughs> You're going to be slaves like oxen. See the yoke? Where Come on. the yoke here? And then we get the long-awaited prophet fight where Jeremiah prophecies Hananiah to death. Then he sends word to all the exiles living in Babylon, and basically God's message is, settle in, motherfuckers, you aren't going anywhere for a while. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that God promises to destroy Babylon for their role in doing exactly what God asked them to do. Yeah, what the fuck was that? Did you guys enslave the Jews? Uh, yeah, you, you made us do that. Right. <laughs> uh, huh. That doesn't sound like me. I mean, I'm Jewish, so yeah, Babylonian genocide, that's happening at some point. I can't see any way around it. Then in chapter 31, it seems like God starts to recognize what an asshole he's been, so he promises to eventually undo all the exile shit he's done in the middle of doing it. Right. The whole chapter has this air of like a, a drunk friend that can't understand why you're so pissed at him for breaking your phone after he duct taped it back together. Right? <laughs> A lot of this book is devoted to squaring the circle about God's promise to David that his generations would forever rule Israel, which they're clearly not. Yeah, a little awkward. And obviously they never learned the lesson because they're spackling over those bullshit prophecies that never came true with new bullshit prophecies that never came true. It's not, of course they are. not helping anything. All right. So apparently God gives them like one chance to forestall exile by freeing all their slaves, and they do. But you know those tricky Jews always looking for a theological loophole, so they free their slaves and then re-slave them immediately, and, and this time God's not buying it. But you really didn't have to be that tricky to figure that one out, do you? I mean, <laughs> he sets a six-year max on the slave career, but when you free your Hebrew slaves, they become poor, homeless desert people with nothing but slave on their resume. So <laughs> it's not very difficult to renew that contract every six years or just, you know, like switch with another plantation owner or something. You got surprisingly bad lawyers, all I'm saying. You wouldn't think. And then King Jehoiakim burns Jeremiah's scroll, and then it's on. It's fucking on. Except that this book has all the chronological cohesion of 21 grams. And all the scientific accuracy as well, yeah, exactly. yes. Uh -huh. Like Spicoli being a good actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, but chronologically, whenever it seems like something is about to happen, we skip back in time to before anything happened at all. So nothing right. ever really happened. We never get there. So no. All right, so now Jeremiah's in prison. And as soon as he gets there, of course, he starts telling everybody about how the good Lord's going to put the sword to him for their iniquities. So the prison guards toss him in a toilet to starve to death. But luckily, an Ethiopian eunuch comes to his rescue. <laughs> Sounds about right. I kind of expected the Ethiopian eunuch to hang out for the rest of the book and make wisecracks. But that would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly got to be Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah. Right. Jeremiah, who crawled through a well of shit. <laughs> <laughs> well done, sir. 
And then the Babylonians break through the city gates. They kill all the king's kids. They rape and murder his wives. They poke out his eyes, and they take him as a prisoner. Because that's what you get for making high places. He tried to tell you. <laughs> then Jeremiah warns everybody that God's going to nuke all of Egypt any minute now. Yep, we're still waiting, but it's going to happen. <laughs> then everybody comes sure. out and says, uh, Hey, er- Jeremiah, where should we go? To which he responds, Anywhere but Egypt. <laughs> so everybody goes to fucking Egypt. <laughs> right. Why do you guys even ask me things? Right? I mean, <laughs> I'm a fucking prophet over here. I wouldn't have any idea what might happen if we go to Egypt. Jesus. And God's incessant rampaging tantrum continues with a bunch of promises about how much Egyptian ass he's going to fuck. But, but it seems like he's just using that to like soften the blow to Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, I know I fucked you guys up pretty good, but wait till you see what I do to those Egyptians. And the Jews are still waiting. Well, Michelle Bachman's convinced that this one's coming true any minute. But other than that, yeah, most of us have given up on it. <laughs> Once Nebuchadnezzar finally finally does his thing, we should see some prolonged stability in that region. <laughs> right. Fix everything. And don't forget the Philistines. He's going to ass-rape them, too. Look at relative that. stability. <laughs> and the Moabites. Starting now. And the Ammonites and the Edomites. Okay, no, 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 now. (laughs) And considering the manner in which God describes his ultimate plans, I keep expecting, like, the good guy to circle back around to the gun while he's still talking (laughs) or something, you know? Yeah, the last few chapters definitely have a you-know-who-else-pisses-me-off kind of feel to them. Right. I mean, I was about to say, those fucking Chaldeans, right? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's got to cut some dick off them or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Maybe I'm reading this wrong, but you tell me. Chapter 50, verse 37. A sword against his horses and against his chariots and against all the foreign troops in this mist so that they become women. That's <laughs> nut chopping, is it? I mean, or do we have to sew on tits as well? <laughs> I'm walking around neutering well, everybody. Bill. Right? <laughs> Puts the lotion in the basket. <laughs> <laughs> and what's with the animosity toward Babylon anyway? Right? God sent the Babylonians to exact his punishment against <laughs> Israel and then carries on for three chapters about he, how he's going to kill them for doing it. Make up your fucking mind, you bipolar fuck. It's ridiculous. Even his vengeance is bipolar. In the span of two sentences, he promises to flood Babylon beneath the sea and make it a desert. (laughs) The fuck? And it fucking was a desert, too. (laughs) And then the book closes with a summary of the historic context of the book and basically repeats what we already read in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. But to be honest, the refresher actually would have been handy if it was at the beginning of the fucking book rather than at the end. You know, and as you read the story of the Jewish exile for the 14th fucking time, it's hard not to reflect on God's strange decision to devote almost his entire book to what happened, like, during 0.09% of human history on 0.0053% of the earth. I'm guessing, what, nothing important happened in the other 99.99963% of the time? Well, nothing more important than Jeremiah's land deed, anyway. Right, right. All right, well, Heath, Lucinda, thanks again for fighting through it. The good news is that Lamentation is a lean five chapters. The bad news is that there are more books after Lamentations. Oh, there's no wow, there. I could come up with a lot more than five chapters of lamentations about this you're right lamenting now (laughs) it's 
time for the part of the show that comes next, listener feedback. This is the part of the show that we set aside every week to talk about the nuances of whiskey labeling standards and the relative illustriousness of varying <laughs> medical degrees, both of which we got more emails about this week, neither of which we're going to be discussing this week. Sorry. No, not happening. Not happening. So our first message comes from a theist named Doug who's never heard our show but saw that our Facebook page had the word atheist in it and wanted to ask us why we're so angry at God if we don't believe he exists. Yes, yes. Hercules had similar statements this week. And (laughs) since neither Hercules or Doug listens to this show, I guess it doesn't matter what we say. So the answer to your question is, fuck you, Doug. Yeah, fuck Doug. Yep. Um, And also, atheists don't actually exist, so I don't even know why he's angry at us. doesn't even make any sense. And we also got a Facebook message from someone we'll call Shauna, though that is not her real name. She works for a religious school and has to pretend to be religious to keep her job, which which includes teaching kids that Jesus really did ride on a broom or whatever they say he did. (laughs) And that is where we come in. Shauna specifically requested a top ten. So here we go. In her words, quote, top ten ways to sneak a bit of rationality into a lesson without losing my job, end quote. Love it. (laughs) Help her out. All right. Number ten. Okay, class, who wants to diagram the next Hitchens quote? (laughs) Number nine. And that's the actual second law of thermodynamics. (laughs) See how that had nothing at all to do with Well done. Number eight is a useful phrase to keep handy. And we can tell God is shy because he's never shown his face anywhere since cameras were invented. Hmm. (laughs) Number seven. And since Bigfoot clearly exists... He must have a blurry face and really exist. So, anyone see a problem with this logic? Anyone? Got All right, number six. Uh, just reference the book of numbers as often as possible. One time through that book should be all it's going to take if these kids are sane. Terrible. Unreal. Number five. Today we're going to learn about the word therefore. <laughs> all the magical things that can go after it. And can't. Number four. Tonight's assignment will be a thousand words on why God created the Ebola virus. <laughs> Bonus on that one, by the way, you'll figure out which kids have racist parents. <laughs> and number three. I before E, except in the alphabet, and atheist, and there is no God. <laughs> and number two. Immediately follow up the sentence, now it's time for a lesson on all the historical evidence for Jesus with the sentence, and now it's time for math. <laughs> and the number one way to sneak a bit of rationality into her lesson without losing her job. Mm, maybe a subtle t-shirt slogan? I was thinking atheist teachers prefer statutory consensual. <laughs> so that's nice for everybody. And that's all the feedback you get. If you want more, keep sending those emails, tweets, Facebook messages, and top ten suggestions. You'll find all the contact info on the contact page at scathingatheist.com. I bet that t-shirt Before we drop the eight tonight, I need to give a quick shout-out to Adam, whose friend Julie thought he deserved a shout-out for being just an awesome person. And who am I to argue with the wisdom of Julie? So, Adam, thanks for all the awesomeness. Also wanted to thank everybody who picked up a copy of the book Diatribes, Volume 1, 50 Essays from a Godless Misanthrope. It's available as an ebook on Amazon and other fine ebook retailers, but act fast as supplies of ones and zeros are limited. We do, however, have a limitless supply of paperback versions, so you can pick those up as well, because remember, you're an atheist and you can give gifts whenever the fuck you feel like it. Of course, I can't shut the show down without thanking Heath once more for his unique mix of blasphemous vulgarity and endearing humanism. I need to thank the lovely Lucinda Lusions for lending us her talents yet again, and obviously I need to thank the turtle hermit himself for providing this week's Farnsworth quote. No doubt the most prominent fictional character to yet grace our opening, though I'd have loved it if he'd given me some Kamehameha advice for the next 
group of evangelicals that show up at my door. But I'll take a Farnsworth quote, too. That's cool. Most of all, of course, though, I need to thank this week's most commendable comrades, Danny, Matthew, Sean, Neil, John, Kelly, Robert, Brian, and Andy. Danny, Matthew, and Sean, whose dicks could be mistaken for the Loch Ness Monster, even if they were in North America. Neil, John, and Kelly, who have enough gravitas to give an assist to a deep space probe. And Robert, Brian, and Andy, whose ejaculations could do the same. Together, these scrumptiously skeptical, scrupulous, scripture-scrutinizing scathiasts have earned alliterative praise this week by giving us money. Not everybody has the keen intellect and impressive genitals required to give us money, but if you think you've got what it takes, you can make a per-episode donation at patreon.com scathingatheist, or you can make a one-time donation by clicking the donate button on the right side of our homepage. And if you want to give us money, but not really, that's cool too. I'm not trying to pressure you. Whenever you're ready is fine. You are worth waiting for. If you have questions, comments, or death threats, you'll find all the contact info on the contact page at skatingatheist.com. All the music used in this episode was written and performed by yours truly, and yes, I did have my permission. After all, women shouldn't be looking for Chris Hamworth and Michael Fender... (laughs) Vanderbenders. <laughs> After all, women shouldn't be looking for Chris Hemworth and Michael. Damn it.